Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number two, Exodus chapter one. Okay, last week we discussed that the noted Hebrew Bible scholar Everett Fox chose a method to look at Exodus that involved dividing it into six sections. And today we're going to enter the first of those divisions that he calls the deliverance narrative. And of course it starts at Exodus 1.1 and it continues though on through chapter 15. So for the next month or so, a long so, we'll be looking at all that God did to gain his chosen people's release from Pharaoh beginning with rescue of that infant child Moses from the Nile and ending just after the parting of the Red Sea, which completes the Israelites' escape from the hand of Pharaoh. Now, just for you note-takers, the second division uh, called uh, Wilderness Experience starts at the end of 15 and continues through chapter 18. And then the third part, Covenant and Law, Starts at chapter 19, goes through 24. The fourth part, uh, divi uh, the fourth part, the, the uh, plan of the wilderness tabernacle or the blueprints begins at 25 and goes through 31. The fifth division, infidelity and reconciliation, starts in chapter 32, runs to chapter 34, and finally, the actual building and completion of the tabernacle starts with 35 and runs to the end of Exodus. So let's Read Exodus 1 together. Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came into Egypt with Yaakov, each man with his own household. Reuven, Shimon, Levi, Judah, Yiskar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, God, and Asher. All told, there were 70 descendants of Yaakov. Yosef was already in Egypt. Yosef died, as did all his brothers and all that generation. The descendants of Israel were fruitful, increased abundantly, multiplied, and grew very powerful. The land became filled with them. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt, and he knew nothing about Joseph, but said to his people, Look, the descendants of Israel have become a people too numerous and powerful for us. Come, let's use wisdom in dealing with them. Otherwise, they'll continue to multiply, and in the event of war, they might ally themselves to our enemies, fight against us, and leave the land altogether. So they put slave masters over them, to oppress them with forced labor, and they built for Pharaoh the storage cities of Pitom and Ramses. But the more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more they multiplied and expanded, until the Egyptians came to dread the people of Israel and worked them relentlessly, making their lives bitter with hard labor, digging clay, making bricks, all kinds of field work. And in all this toil, they were shown no mercy. Moreover, 
the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was called Shifrah and the other Puah. When you attend the Hebrew women and see them giving birth, he said, if it's a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. However, the midwives were God-fearing women, so they didn't do as the king of Egypt ordered, but let the boys live. The king of Egypt summoned the midwives and demanded of them, why have you done this and let the boys live? And the midwives answered Pharaoh, it's because the Hebrew women aren't like the Egyptian women. They go into labor and give birth before the midwife even arrives. Therefore, God prospered the midwives, and the people continued to multiply and grow very powerful. Indeed, because the midwives feared God, he made them founders of families. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born, throw in the river, but let all the girls live. Well, time gets gobbled up here. Between the last verse of Genesis and the opening verse of Exodus, a period of about 350 years has passed. The first few verses of Exodus are kind of a bridge between the close of Exodus, or rather the close of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. You see, the thing is, Genesis is not the end of one story in Exodus the start of a new one, they're completely linked. One just flows into the next. Exodus is a continuation of a, and a progression of what was begun in Genesis. So we're reminded that Jacob, Yaakov, and all 11 of his sons that lived with him in Canaan along with their family members came to live in Egypt, but Joseph was already there, the total 70. Now here's the thing. We're going to get many symbolic numbers in the Torah and the Bible as a whole. Seventy is a symbolic number. Now, on the one hand, Genesis 46, which lists all the male descendants of Jacob by means of both his legal wives and his concubines, gives us the count of 70. However, as we discussed way back when, when we discussed that chapter, the number 70 presents a problem because it includes two of Judah's sons who died at the hand of God in Canaan, as well as Joseph and his two sons who were born up in Egypt, or down in Egypt rather. So 70 males of, Joseph, of Jacob's family could well be accurate, but on the other hand, 70 is such a round number and such a symbolic number that indicates totality or completeness um, or something that's fully comprehensive, all right, that we have to likely view this number given here, 70, as symbolic that basically all of Israel went to Egypt with nobody left behind. They moved in total to Egypt. Now consider this. We know from Genesis 34 that when the sons of Jacob killed all the males of Shechem, in retribution for the rape of their sister Dinah, they took all the women and all those children of Shechem as slaves and concubines. And understand that from an ancient Middle Eastern perspective, these women and children just simply became part of Israel. Okay. Further, this number 70 only figures males. Okay. 
there were at least as many females, and usually there were significantly more females than males in ancient populations because the men were killed in battle or injured on their jobs. Okay? Therefore, the actual total number of people who went down to Egypt, those who would be reasonably labeled as Israelites at this point, was probably 200 or so. In later studies, I'm going to show you why it's important to recognize that. Well, the bulk of the Israelites still lived now some 350 years after their initial arrival in this same general area, um, delta region of, of Egypt that they did when Joseph called for them to come. The land of Goshen. Anybody recall their grandmother saying, land of Goshen? There really was one. Okay. Um, the central city that they lived there was called Avaris. And uh, Joseph appears to have had a palace there for he and his immediate family. The city has been found. All right? And there can be no doubt as to its identity. In archaeological terms, this place is now called Tel Ed-Abba. Right? It is huge. And it would have supported hundreds of thousands of people. Okay? And it was Hebrew and Canaanite in architecture. Okay? Further, more archaeological finds have confirmed that it was in the land of Goshen, which oddly, to our way of thinking, was called Lower Egypt, where the Hyksos rulers of Egypt set up their capital city, and not surprisingly, it was the same of Aris. Now, a common refrain from non-Christians and, and uh, university professors is that the Bible is simply a book full of legends and myths, right? and that the people and places found in scripture, for the most part, never really existed. And they were also told that they never found a place in Egypt where all those Hebrews might have lived. We're told they never found record of Solomon or King David, nor most of the biblical cities. Nonsense. Okay, They have found these sites. They have these records. And when push comes to shove, it's admitted. Right? The only reason that many archaeologists and Egyptologists will argue against the conclusion that Tel Ed-Abba, right, Avaris, is the city of the Exodus is because they date Avaris to an earlier time than when the Bible chronology says it ought to be. And so it's just a matter of placing these archaeological sites in relation to time that's the issue. Now the current system of dating ancient places and people and events, which was established, by the way, in the 1800s, is called the Regnal Dating System. And it's based on the supposed times of the reigns of certain Egyptian pharaohs. It's a system that's full of huge time gaps, pure speculation, and a lot of educated guesses. Okay, but more some of the foundational pillars of regnal dating have, through recent modern research, proved to be absolutely false. And that's fully recognized. Okay? A new dating system 
called the New Chronology is beginning to gain mainstream academic support slowly but surely. And when the New Chronology is applied to the finds at Avaris and to the hundreds and hundreds of the other biblical sites in Egypt, or rather in, in Israel, the biblical timeline just starts falling perfectly in place. Okay. Now, as anyone that's spent any time in our advanced educational system knows, the Bible is anathema to these folks. Okay. So any system of dating that seems to verify biblical truth, even though the system wasn't devised with that goal, is very difficult to establish. By the way, Christian and Bible scholars did not devise this new chronology. It was begun by a fellow named David Roll, who's an Oxford academic, and he's an agnostic. Okay? And since the academic world of archaeology had some time ago determined a better dating system had to become up, had, had to happen, right, beyond this regnal dating system, which just isn't working anymore, he took the tact that while he doesn't acknowledge any spiritual element of the Bible, that there's no reason to assume that the historical accounts written in the Bible are inherently false and necessarily inaccurate. Although this assumption has and continues to be the foundational principle among scholars and scientists. If it says it in the Bible, you throw it out. You assume on its face it's inaccurate. Now I detoured a little to tell you this because I want you to know that when we're reading Exodus, these people and places actually existed and the events happened. Okay? And many proofs have been found and more are constantly being unearthed every day. Okay? Now we're told in verse 6 that Joseph died and along with him, it makes the point, all that generation. That is, all of his brothers and sisters. Now we need to picture Joseph's generation as the immigrant generation. That ought to mean something to us right about now. Yeah. Okay. Joseph's generation was the immigrant generation. I mean, think for a moment just what that means. Okay. Practically every one of us in this room are natural born Americans. However, our parents or grandparents or perhaps great-grandparents were probably immigrants. Right? They came from somewhere else to start a new life here. And their experience in America as immigrants who just got off the boat was quite different right, than for those of us who they produced. Okay? We know nothing of a foreign country where immigrant parents or ancestors came from. Okay? We only know America and our American culture. Okay? That, that second and third generation of Israelites after Joseph was quite different than those that originally journeyed down from Canaan. Okay? Those who had come to survive that great famine thought of their stay as just for a while. Right? The next generation, though, after them, had little or no thought of going back to Canaan. Right? After all, Egypt was the only home they ever knew. They were quite comfortable in Egypt. They were treated well. They were prospering. 
Now, what God through Joseph had begun, Joseph's death did not end. Okay? Verse 7 says that even after Joseph died, the Israelites continued to prosper and grow in number, and they spread out exceedingly. Right? Yet it was this very purpose of God, this amazing fruitfulness of the Hebrews, that was going to lead Israel into a violent confrontation with a future pharaoh an increasingly paranoid pharaoh. Well, the Hyksos rulers, those Semites who came from somewhere in the Middle East and likely were just a conglomeration of people, not, not a nation of people. Those Hyksos rulers who became the rulers of Egypt during the time a little before and then contemporary with, and then for about a century or so, after Joseph, well, they continued to favor the Israelites. After all, they were cousins. Okay? While this enviable status of the Hebrews allowed them to grow and prosper, it was also slowly creating this festering jealousy and hatred of them by the natural-born Egyptians. The end of verse 7 and this first chapter marks the end of life in Egypt as the Israelites had known it. The end of verse 7 is the end of Israel's golden age in Egypt. Now before we move on into this next era of the Hebrews' time in Egypt, this might be a good time to take out our magnifying glasses and look at how Israel was currently structured from a human society standpoint. Because beginning now in Exodus and running through the remainder of the Old Testament, the Bible assumes that we understand their ancient Hebrew societal structure. Okay? If we don't, we're going to get lost. Okay? So with apologies to you who may already know this, for everybody else, we're going to take a few minutes to learn about the titles for the various leadership positions, the, the levels that they held, and the names for the various subdivision of Hebrew people that came from this population explosion. Okay? And if we can learn what they're each referring to, we're going to glean some extra understanding each time these terms are used in our studies. Now let's remember that the nation of Israel was founded and named after Jacob. All right, up here at the top, right, who God renamed Israel. Okay. In those days, the name of a new nation, which is nothing more than a group of people, okay, was taken from its founder. Okay. Jacob went on to have 12 sons who each then formed their own subdivision of, it, of Israel. And each of these sons would eventually establish their own tribe, their own branch, if you would, of Israel. And of course, each son would be the ruler of that branch or tribe of Israel. Then the 12 tribes each produced children who formed the next subdivision, and then that subdivision is the one that is typically called clans. All right. Um, sometimes it's called families. And as each of these clans or families 
went on to produce children, those children would, would mature and produce the next generation or subdivision that the Bible calls households. Right? Now, in more familiar Western terminology, Jacob was the father, the twelve sons the children, their children the grandchildren, and their children the great-grandchildren. But the Bible uses different terms. They don't use those same terms. All right. So Israel was the nation. The twelve sons were the tribes that formed the nation. The sons of the twelve tribal leaders each formed their own clan or family. Now, while the Bible translators tend to use clan and family almost interchangeably, most accurately with our 21st century Western way of thinking, it would be best to think of the clans and families as just clans so we don't get confused, and use the word family for another category I'm going to show you in just a moment. In any case, the offspring of these clans formed households. Now, out of these households, which we could best equate in our traditional thinking as extended families, came what the Bible sometimes calls man by man. All right? This is not talking about eligible bachelors. Okay? Rather, this would be the equivalent of our modern-day nuclear family, the smallest family unit. That is, a mother, a father, and their young children together as a unit. Now, often the Bible translators will call this man-by-man -man subdivision of family, but this isn't to be confused with these same Bible translators who will call a clan a family. So you can see how this gets a little difficult. All right, But if we can start to get the gist of this, we can start to get sizes and structures in mind. So the structure is nation, tribe, clan, household, man by man, or family. So the Bible calls the leader of a household the head. Sometimes he's referred to as a chief. Okay? The leader of each clan is called a chief. You see the word chief, that's a clan leader. The leader of a tribe is called a prince. Okay, you see prince, he's the leader of the tribe, the whole tribe. Alright, so each of the twelve tribes of Israel had a prince, and as long as there existed twelve tribes, there were twelve princes. Okay, now these princes were the rulers over all the people in their tribe. Alright, every subdivision. Every clan, household, and family was ultimately beholden to that tribal prince. Right? His word was law. Right? Let's keep in mind a trait of these tribal principles that, though obvious on the surface, is nonetheless important. These princes inherited their positions. Okay? Their heredity was all that counted while an outsider from another of the Israelite tribes, or let's say a complete foreigner, a non-Hebrew, could at times be accepted as a member of a tribe, that outsider would never be allowed to become a prince. Because absolute proper genealogy, traceable not just back to Jacob, but to the proper original son of Jacob, that is the proper tribe, this was required for a person to be the prince of that tribe. Okay, So... In the order of prince, chief, head, we've got what's formed here a hereditary aristocracy, if you would. That is, when it came to authority, it was just like 
the name of that old TV series. It's all in the family. Okay. Now, interestingly, operating in parallel was a whole nother class or category of leadership and authority, a sort of uh, elected or appointed class of leaders, and this class of leaders were representatives to the common people, the common people of the clans and the families and the household. They were called elders and scribes, okay, or elders and officers. Now, this class of appointed or elected leaders operated under the authority of the tribal prince. Right? Now, there's absolutely no way, for instance, that you could ever remove a prince or a chief from his position except perhaps through assassination. Right? Because his position was birthright. It was his birthright to have that position and therefore it was unchangeable and permanent. But elders, scribes, officers of the people, they could be removed legitimately from their position if there was enough displeasure on the part of the people right, for whom they were selected to serve or if they upset the tribal leadership a little bit too much. And of course, elders and officers and scribes developed their own pecking order among themselves. They were further subdivided by their exact duties and a simple management hierarchy like we're all used to seeing it wherever it is we work. You know, you know, little fish reports to big fish, big fish reports to bigger fish. Okay, So keep this handy as we go forward. These titles and understanding structure and pecking order was important to the decisions that went on in Israelite culture. When the Bible uses terms like prince and chief, tribe or clan, this represents something very specific. Right? They're not just interchangeable words or synonyms. So anyway, let's continue on now with Exodus. Now, as I mentioned earlier, verse 7 ends and verse 8 begins a, a new and far less happy era for these Israelites in Egypt. We're told that a new king, that is a new pharaoh, arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Simply this meant that this new king had no intentions of honoring whatever deals the previous kings, previous pharaohs had with the Israelites, and this for one very good reason. This new king was an Egyptian. The first Egyptian ruler of Egypt in a very long time. Okay. This new Egyptian pharaoh promptly announces that the Israelites who had been honorable and worthy citizens of Egypt for nearing 200 years are suddenly a danger to Egypt. And they're a danger because they're many more than we. In other words, the Pharaoh played the race card. Okay. Since those hated Hyksos rulers were Middle Eastern Semites and seen as cousins of essentially the same stock as the Hebrews, they were all lumped together in one big pot. Now that the Hyksos rulers were defeated, those who supported those rulers and looked a lot like those rulers, these, those Israelites became persona non grata. Okay? And they would bear the brunt now of Egypt's newfound nationalism and paranoia. So, are we to take it 
that the Hebrews at this point actually outnumbered the Egyptians, which the Pharaoh says they did in verse 9, or was the Pharaoh exaggerated? Well, yes and yes. Okay. While the Israelites were numerous and lived throughout Egypt, they were highly concentrated in Goshen and would have well outnumbered the Egyptian nationals up there in the land of Goshen. But when considering Egypt overall, upper and lower, best estimates are that the Israelites would not have represented more than about 25% of the entire population of Egypt, but that's still a pretty substantial number. Now, is it not ironic and completely indicative of the ongoing battle between God and Satan that what God counted as blessing, the incredible fruitfulness of Israel, Pharaoh counted as a curse? And so the confrontation between good and evil begins. Pharaoh's in a bind. He hates the Israelites and he fears the Israelites, but he needs those Israelites. He needs them as a workforce. They're the key to the Egyptian economy and the hoped return of Egypt to a position of being a regional and then world power. The solution? Subjugation. Control them. Use them for what they're good at. Keep their population in check, but don't let them leave. Okay. Now, don't get the idea in all this, though, that the Egyptian population began taking Hebrews as house slaves. Okay. Rather, it was the Egyptian government that conscripted the Israelite males as work gangs for their building projects. It was rather like being drafted into the army, except there was no pay. And in fact, what Egypt did was to conscript Egyptian males in order to create a loyal nationalist army to protect the nation from invasion. At the same time, it was conscripting those bothersome Hebrews all right, as the nation's civilian labor, labor force. Now, interestingly, there is no evidence that Israelite women were included in this slave labor scheme. Because the work that was required was male work, making mud bricks, constructing houses and buildings out of them, also constructing and maintaining a vast network of canals and water reservoirs, building new roads and military fortresses. Okay. The Hebrews became the primary group of construction labor in Egypt, and their lives became miserable as a result. And to a degree... The new king of Egypt's plan worked. The construction projects did bring the country back, back to glory. And the enslavement of the Israelites did control their movement. But another aspect of his plan failed. Rather than reducing the Israelite population from all this hard work, the more the Egyptians oppressed the Israelites, the more children these Hebrews produced. And the more children the Israelites produced, the more paranoid it, paranoid it made Pharaoh. All right? And here we see one of the God patterns emerge that will continue until Jesus comes again. 
The more you persecute God's people, the more fruitful they will become. Israel never grew more and faster, and the church never grew more and faster than under the worst persecutions. Okay. If Israel had just given up, thrown up their hands, and decided to fully assimilate into Egyptian society, they might well have avoided persecution. But they would have forgone fruitfulness. And as long as the church continues with this trend at times, to take the easy road, to look more and more like the world so we avoid persecution because of our identity with Yeshua, the less fruitful we're going to be. Okay, So it has been, so it will ever be. It's simply the way God's economy works. You know, we really have no ability to alter it. That's the deal. So worried and frustrated was this unnamed Pharaoh that he did something desperate, something that in many ways would be counter to his grand purposes. He ordered those who call the who the Bible calls the midwives of the Hebrews, to cull the Israelite stock. The plan was that if the infant they assisted into the world was a boy, they would immediately kill it. Yet had the Pharaoh succeeded in this infanticide, he would only have reduced the workforce available for his aggressive construction aspirations. Well, his plan didn't work. These midwives who knew and feared the Hebrew God, didn't obey the Pharaoh. What we have essentially here with these midwives is the first recorded instance in the Bible of civil disobedience in order to obey God's morals and ethics. And you know, often we find men's morals and ethics in opposition to God's. And this rather brave defiance was conducted by women. Okay. Now, two women are named here as the midwives, Shifra and Pois. Right. Now, without doubt, they must have been something like the senior midwives in charge of many more midwives, because two, two would never have been enough to handle the hundreds of daily births taking place among the Israelites all over Egypt. Being a midwife was one of the few professions open to women in that era. It was respected and valued and it was needed. A midwife primarily was there to assist the woman in her labor and to cut the umbilical cord, to wash the newborn, okay, and to rub it down with salt. And in the case of twins, it was the midwife who would testify as to which one was born first. Okay. Now naturally, which of a set of male twins came out first was pretty important because that one would usually receive the firstborn blessing while the second to arrive did not. So midwives were held in high esteem and their function was vital. Midwifery was also quite organized and the midwives were paid by those whom they served. There was a midwife guild. Probably Shifra and Pois were the head of the guild, which is why the Pharaoh specifically summoned those two. Okay. Now, as an interesting aside, 
many Bible scholars doubt that these midwives were Hebrews. The Hebrew wording of the sentence is a little ambiguous in that regard because the words can be taken to mean either Hebrew midwives or midwives of the Hebrews. Okay? But this conclusion is drawn for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's unimaginable that the Pharaoh would have been so dumb as to honestly expect Hebrew midwives to kill their fellow Hebrew newborns. Second, these women, in verse 19, obviously know something about how Egyptian women experience the birthing process, as they comment that Hebrew women give birth faster than those Egyptian women. Now, since Egyptians at this time wanted nothing to do with these Hebrews, it's pretty hard to imagine a Hebrew woman being the midwife employed for an Egyptian mother, mother to give birth. Very probably, Shifra and Pua were Semite women, but not Hebrews. Okay? In fact, their names are of obvious Semite origin, but they're not Hebrew names. Now, we should also take note here that in spite of this distinctly male-oriented world of tribal society, and I'm pretty sure many of you ladies would say not much has changed in 3,000 years, the Torah makes these two women into honored heroines. Right? We're, we're going to see often in the Bible how women are painted as used of God and venerated by the people. In fact, as we approach the story of Moses, women are going to become some of the main characters. Well, having failed, still unable to stem this Hebrew population explosion, Pharaoh turns to the Egyptian populace and tells them to monitor the situation. That is, when they see a Hebrew woman, a woman about to give birth, it's their responsibility to do something about it. Now, for sure, the average Egyptian didn't go and take this infant from its mother and destroy it any more than an average German in World War II would have wandered around killing Jews. It didn't work that way. Okay? Rather, they would have reported it to government authorities that had people assigned to come and take the newborn, if a male, and throw it to its death in the waters of the Great Nile River. Now, this, of course, is irrational fear at its worst. Right? Because there's no record, Egyptian or otherwise, of Israel ever trying to take over the government of Egypt or rebelling or even conniving with a state enemy. Actually, Pharaoh's actions couldn't do anything but harm Egypt's ability to carry through with its ambitions. But this is not going to be the last time that Israel is in some bizarre way blamed for a nation's problems and pays an enormous price in blood for that paranoia. Okay? In fact, this behavior towards the Jewish people will become a pattern throughout history right up until our day. Now one more thing and we'll come to an end of the first chapter of Exodus. Remember I told you last week about Hebrew word patterns. And I named four words that 
recurred in various form all throughout Exodus. Now we're going to run into one of them right here in Exodus 1, and that word is serve. However, our English translations kind of mask this recurrence by translating the same basic Hebrew word several different ways. I mean, look at verses 13 and 14 right quick. Look at verses 13 and 14. Most of our Bibles will say something to the effect of making the Israelites do hard labor. Work imposed on them. Rigorous labor. Now, usually the English word chosen in this section of Exodus is labor. But the original Hebrew word, root word is avad. Okay. Various forms of avad are used five times in verses 13 and 14. So if we took these two verses in their most literal Hebrew sense, bringing with it, the Hebrew word style and intent to make a point by the repetitive use of the Hebrew word abad, it would read like this. So they, Egypt, made the children of Israel subservient with crushing labor. They embittered their lives with hard servitude and brick and mortar with all kinds of servitude in the field all their service in which they made them subservient with crushing labor. This is what they do. Okay? When this Hebrew word pattern is uncovered, we see an important spiritual principle emerge that's otherwise obscured. And it's this. Whom you serve determines the nature of that service. Whom you serve entirely determines the nature of that service. When we serve God, all of our service is voluntary to him. It's positive, good, lovely. It has an eternal quality about it, truth and life. When we serve Satan, in this case through Pharaoh, but more often it's serving, frankly, ourselves and our own desires, what we are participating in is servitude. It's forced. It's negative. It's evil. It's not fruitful. Right? And whatever's produced from it is just going to burn up. Right? Right along with everything else about this world at the end of days. Well, at this point in verses 13 and 14, in Exodus, we see, we only see the negative side of Avad, of Sir. A little bit later, we're going to start to see the positive side of Sir. But it's a lot harder to even pick up this much, much intentional wordplay with English translations. Next week, we'll get into Exodus chapter 2.